Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Stories on Tape with Aisha Puyan. Hefsa is talking to us today about the stigma around a woman's body, such as menstruation and all the other things we don't really learn about growing up as much as we should be. Just talking about the, oh, what will people say culture when you're talking about sexual assault or victim blaming. And then also thinking about how we can translate these needs, these high profile issues into policy making and action items. So tune in to learn what we can do as a society collectively to make this world a better place. Hifsa comes to us today in the middle of exam week. She is a master's candidate in population and family health in the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I first really like became aware of like the misogyny and the stigma around being a woman, especially like when it comes to like even the health of it, was when in at Penn State we had to take either like a history course or something along those lines, like a gen ed, right? So me and my roommate ended up taking a woman in representation, such as in like media and arts. Mm-hmm. And it was like a feminist course and it really made open my eyes to how women are represented in media and arts and like movies in the film industry. And that's actually where I also um, heard about Judy Chicago's dinner party, which I actually went to. I think it's a, um, a museum in Brooklyn. Yes, it was, it, was, it was great to see that in real life. And I think it really, really kicked off when I had to apply for grad school. And for grad school, you, they ask you to make like a personal statement asking, you know, why do you, why do you want to do public health or, you know, go into PA school. And mine was always kind of stemming from advocating for a woman's health, being that my first early memory of, I guess, feeling disempowered or like I knew there were like gender differences was when they, you know, like when you're in elementary school, they show you the video of puberty, separate you off from boys and girls. And I came home so excited to my mom. Mom, I'm becoming older. Like I'm part of like the adults gang now. Like take me seriously. (laughs) And I told, like I showed her this little like goodie bag. They gave us like the information on your body. And I guess they had like menstrual like pads in it, you know, helpful stuff. Mm -hmm. And she was just culturally shocked by it because over in Pakistan, they never talk about it. It's something that you learn from your from women from generation to generation about it. And even then the knowledge is really limited. So I feel like that's where it all really stemmed from. I, as you know, grew up in Bangladesh and Mm -hmm. I wasn't living with my mom at the time. So my mom was in New York and I was in a joint family with my aunt. (laughs) I had a very similar experience when the subject of menstruation and female hygiene first came Mm -hmm. up in the household. Like my dad, had didn't want anything to do with that because he just didn't know how to like he, he would buy me pads and stuff but he didn't really know Aww. how to talk to me about it or yeah. even it was so funny because you know usually it's it's the mom that does things but my yes. dad bought me my first bra my first pads it was it was a lot i appreciate him for it they were all ugly but it was interesting because when i got my period the first day i was so terrified because of how unprepared i was mm-hmm. I went to my aunt, am I dying? <laughs> like, I, I know what periods are, 
but I, I just didn't know they happen naturally yeah. or just like at a day when you least expect it. I remember it was my cousin's wedding and it was a big day for me. I was getting dressed up and I was like, wait, oh. what's happening? I'm like dying. And, and my aunt like sat me down. She's like, you're not dying. And then we had the conversation. But a lot of it is the cultural aspect where you and I grew up or like the families we come from where people are just not comfortable talking mm-hmm. about these things. And I know period talk is just one part of this, but we just don't grow up addressing all the different issues that are addressed towards women growing up. And then we go to college, or we become the voices, and our parents are like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing that, though? <laughs> are, are you focusing on your work? Are you paying enough attention to work? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I am doing that. <laughs> But I I love that you're pursuing this full-time and you thought about it as a career choice. When you were, I would love to learn about how that's shaped your current life. How do you plan to use it and move forward? Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. So now that I'm in grad school, um, my department is in population and family health with a certificate in humanitarian action. And so one of the courses we took in the spring semester of this year was with Professor Marnie Summer, and she's like our menstrual queen. And the whole class, it, the class title itself was just Global Menstrual Advocacy and Policy. So everything was blood, period, menstruation, and everything. Oh, fabulous. And it was really interesting just to see how even in the U.S., around the world, there's not even like a single, except for like Scotland. Scotland is actually the first country to end period poverty by supplying free pads and tampons and everything. No way. I had no yes. idea. <laughs> exactly. Scotland. Like you have Scotland and then you have the U.S., which is too busy taxing the basic necessities. You have condoms for free, but you don't have menstrual needs for free. So like there's something definitely not equal there, but you know. And I guess it was just, it was alarming to know that my professor mentioned that she did some work with UNICEF Mm -hmm. in refugee camps. Um, So like we're talking like a low middle income setting. And basically UNICEF had to have a reason in order to provide these girls with sanitary disposable um, pads and they tried to be like oh you know if you give them the disposable pads their urinary tract infection like the risk of developing it decreases and you know lo and behold research so showed that it didn't really have any effect on the UTIs by using disposable pads but then they really came out UNICEF was like you know what no 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 it's more so that the girls can stay in school longer Mm-hmm. and it doesn't cause interference in their educational learning. It was just interesting to see that, you know, she framed it in a way that, why do you need to have like a medical reason? Do you right. know, have like these basic necessities? But then when you start really getting into the nits and grits of it, even in prison systems here and in other contexts, especially in like the US, you know, pads aren't provided. Like I feel like you still have to pay for them through your very, very little pay that you get there. It's just not in, it's not a basic necessity classified by either the government or the policies. It's just looked upon as like a luxurious item. Whereas it's really not. Yeah, we can go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you a little bit about my experience in the corporate world where I remember in Chicago, I 
had launched. It was like a woman affinity chapter meant for anyone who identifies as woman to just deal with issues in the workplace or even ways to collaborate with the external community, like how it, how can we integrate them into our daily lives at work. And there was one drive called the Period Project. Oh. Do you know about yeah. them? I feel like I've heard of it, Period Project, yeah, or like the Period Movement. Yeah. There are a couple out there. There are a couple out there. Mm-hmm. So the specific one was giving out sanitation needs or like any hygiene-related product mm-hmm. to homeless women or women that oh, are in yes, shelters. Yes. Because we, we don't think about stuff like that. You know, when we're thinking about donating things in need, we think about canned food. Um, we think about exactly bags of potatoes or whatnot. We, we don't really consider the basic needs, like you said, like preserving your dignity. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of different thoughts on this, on how people should be more accepting of periods and is this really an issue of dignity? Like people should be comfortable seeing blood and whatnot, but this should be a choice. We should all have equal access to basic hygiene products. Definitely. And I really, I was really interested in that drive and I wanted to do a little bit more. And I remember a couple of us in the office set up this, we also didn't have pads in the office actually for contact let me start there and we were trying to get free pad supplies in our offices and at the same time we're like you know what this would be a great drive to also raise awareness for the period project um so we left a basket of tampons or pads on the like right next to the sink area and there was a little sign like every time you pick up a pad consider donating 25 cents for someone in need so we can get them a pad so it was mm-hmm. kind of similar to the tom's idea of when you buy a shoe buy a pair of shoes you also donate a pair of shoes yeah and yes. that gained a lot of momentum so that was really cool to see and then more and more people started asking about the period project and looking for ways to give back to the homeless community in chicago but i always really loved the idea of that and now that you're talking about workplaces and how the U.S. in general have dealt with such things, that's what it reminded me of. Thankfully, we do get free pads in in the office now. (laughs) That is is like a first step, and I love it. It is a first step. It's small victories, but we're we're getting there. Well, on the topic of that, when I was still, you know, pre-COVID life, one of the the class, uh, the my, my menstrual class, the building that it took place in, one of the bathrooms actually had like free tampons and pads provided. It's not really an accessible location to the public, but for the students, it was amazing, right? Mm-hmm. But you were talking about homelessness and how homeless individuals may not have that equal access. One of the projects that my class had to do was we had to go around in New York City we had to check out private and public spaces and see the differences in their bathrooms. And I was actually really surprised knowing that in subway stations, there aren't any bathrooms except for maybe like the huge ones such as like at like uh, Grand Central or like... um, Penn Station. Yes, yes, Penn Station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those huge ones. Otherwise... Like, I worry that where these homeless individuals, where can they go to manage their menses? That's a really fair point. I actually never even thought about 
bathrooms or accessibility in, in a lot of subway stations. Like, I even think about all the subways with just staircases and people that need wheelchair accessibility. Uh, I always yes, wondered what yes. they were doing. There's so many things we could be doing better, <laughs> but no, that, that's actually mind-blowing. Yeah. I didn't even think about bathrooms. How do you take a shower? Like how, you, you don't have access to basic things like that. And in one of the videos where they showed the homeless individual and how they manage their menses, they would just walk in into a restroom, let's say in a playground, and you would use the water from the sink to wash your face, your arms, maybe your legs, and then do as best as you can from it but the more you learn about the situation in like the u.s the more it's just an eye-opener as to like you know we need to do a lot of changing a lot of extra miles we have to go like a long way towards achieving equality and equity yes we have a lot of really strong female voices in the room now that advocate for such issues that you literally are trying to make a career out of it which is so inspiring to me so thank you for doing that um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> i i also think in the same vein allyship is really important and when we're looking at these spaces obviously these are female issues and the loudest voices should be female exactly but we also need allies we need mm -hmm. allies in rooms where females aren't present <laughs> to talk about these things right and yeah I mean, I, I love the men in my life, and some of them do a really good job, but it's it's the minority. I, Definitely, re yeah. I really wish more men would feel comfortable talking about female hygiene and accessibility and just issues that don't pertain to them. <laughs> no, definitely. And maybe a part of it is just the way we are raised in this world like some topics are just considered taboo we don't uh, talk about yeah periods, or like they won't see the importance of wanting to talk about it right. like i remember where i was in pakistan maybe age 13 14 right and by that time i already had my menstruation started but like me and my mom and my aunt just us three women <laughs> folks sitting in the room where my <laughs> right <laughs> So my aunt was just talking to my mom about how her niece started her period and you know like just that experience was just confusing to the poor niece. How like she had like hush hush just taught like explain to her the basic stuff on like you know here's a pad you know use it do what you gotta do. And then it started relating to what the aunt was saying I was like yeah yeah like when I got my period you know like this is what I went through and my mom was like why are you saying these details like why are you disclosing these the sensitive information and to me it was just, well, what's sensitive about it, you know? Like, yeah. it, like every girl goes through it, if, and if anything. a natural human flow. Yes, a natural thing. Like, my aunt walked away because she had to do something, and my, my mom was like, Nessa, why did you say these things to her? You don't need to tell everybody that you you started menstruation. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, what did I do wrong? Oh my god, <laughs> I completely forgot about that. Yes, that was another thing. Having been raised in um, a similar culture, <laughs> we wouldn't talk about when we started on our periods. For oh, some reason, yeah, that's all it's like hush, a given. Hush. Yeah, it's like, no, you, you don't tell other girls you're on your period. Then they'll think you're older. And I'm like, yes. What? Yes. <laughs> like, like I can't control when I get my period. Some women get it. Some some girls get it when they're seven years old. Some girls oh, get it when exactly. they're thirteen. Like I 
don't think that means anything. And it's so unfortunate that in many cultures where you start your menstruation, it's your debut of like sexualizing yourself or like, <laughs> something like that. And like you raised a like really Tillian. good point, saying like some girls are so young they start at age seven. Like you're gonna tell me that you're gonna look at her differently? That's that's a you issue, not a not a girl's issue. I'm thinking about issues that pertain to mostly the disadvantaged women in the world so obviously there's a lot we could be doing in our own countries and in our own families but also you mentioned working with refugees that don't have access to the proper sanitation products mm -hmm. or proper family planning products I, I mean condoms are available yes but do they oh. use them no i yes so i work with a charity called the unforgotten fund and they do really great work in cox's bazaar bangladesh with the rohingya refugees mm -hmm. and i was on a site visit a couple years ago and we just sat down with a room full of refugee women and we asked them we're like well do you have all the proper sanitation needs covered? Do you need anything extra? Is there anything we can provide for you? And surprisingly, everyone said we are okay on the sanitation front. And we asked their husbands in a separate room because they also don't feel comfortable talking about mm -hmm. their women yeah. in front of other people. So we, we had like separate <laughs> male versus female conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and the male conversations were also led by a male. So um, when they were asked like, oh, do you know that your wives get periods and stuff and they need X, Y, Z things? Or are you there for them? Like, do you help them? And actually it was nice to see a lot of men were like, yes. We get buckets full of water the night before, so anytime they have to use the bathroom throughout the night, we make sure to keep it right next to the bed so they can take water and just take care of themselves. So that was really sweet. On the other hand, <laughs> when we were talking about <laughs> family planning uh, with the women, oh. we were talking about, obviously there's an issue of overpopulation in refugee camps, mm -hmm, uh, specifically definitely. in the Rohingya refugee camp. And we talked to the woman, we said, do you use birth control or do you try, or have you ever been given family planning seminars or I mean, have you ever talked about these things with mm -hmm. your husband? And they're just like, yeah. We're, yeah, we're fine. And I was like, and, and then I asked them, like, okay, and how do your husbands feel? And they're like, oh, they're fine. And you could just see that they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And then after, I relayed on to a different person who's actually who works in the camp and sees these women more often. And I was like, can you try to get them to open up? And eventually, one woman, she came out of her, she came out of the woods, and she was like. Yeah, my, my husband doesn't believe in condoms. Um, we they, they don't want to use them. And sometimes I'll go on the pill and not tell my husband. But if it were up to him, I would be popping out babies every year. And yeah. that was a really interesting <laughs> finding because the very next hour we sat down with that group of men and we asked them, why they don't believe in family planning or condoms for that matter or even birth control and they said we believe it's a sin oh sin yeah and they said we don't believe condoms are religiously permissible mm -hmm. we are it's like a, they tried to explain to us that it was like abortion <laughs> Oh boy, and, <laughs> if only, if only they knew. I mean, we're, like, we're not here trying to talk about the merits and demerits of abortion. I'm not going to get into that. I'm, like, 
but the simple fact that you're comparing using a condom to getting an abortion like what <laughs> and I exactly. was so flustered I was sitting behind um the person asking the questions I was just like what they were like yeah the more babies we have the more people the more um mouths to pray to God and they, they put a religious spin on it um that also like obviously you can't come between someone and their faith and really say something yeah. but then they were told that you you know if a woman goes through multiple pregnancies that takes a toll on them and you don't yeah. have proper food you don't have proper access to medication do you not care about your wives do you don't not care about their health and they were just quiet and they were like god will take care of them uh, having children is you know also a responsibility and stuff like you should be financially ready and everything but like i feel like my family members they also put like a religious spin on it being like every child is born with like a risk or something once they're born their destiny you know the, the, the destiny will carry them through their lives and i'm just like a cute way of thinking but also like wishful thinking like i wouldn't say it's like really realistic but um i understand <laughs> Like where like the men were trying to say like how condoms are like, oh no. But surprisingly enough, where I came across an issue was um, with like you saying like how they, they do have like the provision of like menstrual needs and everything. So like pads, tampons, underwear, you know, water and everything. I feel like the main issue though is with, especially with like refugee settings, is with the family planning services so this includes like safe abortion services mm -hmm. and due to the global gag rule like you have like these NGOs getting money from the US where it's like you have this money but you can't use it you can't use it for their SRH needs whereas like you really really need them like it's like a basic right to access these like medical needs going on from menstruation to violence against women and girls these services really do come in handy like this could be like a life or death scenario so when we're thinking about like refugee crises where most often these instances are occurring there's actually um, a tool called MISP and it stands for a minimum initial service package mm -hmm. and this is specifically made for sexual reproductive health services so let's say for example a civilian is raped you know systematically raped in like an armed conflict so she would be able to access this package within the next 72 hours to ensure that she doesn't have any STI or, you know, need to be treated for through like antibiotics or given contraceptives or anything. But unfortunately, this package doesn't include abortion service as like a mandatory one. For now, it's listed as like another optional, you know, thing think about but it isn't an emergency like immediate like basic thing that we're going to provide to you how has that evolved over the years <sighs> so for the miss but over like over the years i feel like one of my professors is working on it on including abortion services but you know it all comes down to the u.s you know the donors the funders of these ngos like other developed nations such as European nations like the EU have no issues with um, funding family planning services. It's just the US. And unfortunately, US is one of the one of the huge donors for NGOs. And with the global gag rule, 
it changes with our elections. So, you know, if you have someone Democratic coming in, obviously they're going to loosen, loosen up on the, the rulings of the global gag policy. They'll be even more strict. With Trump, who came in, he even, he did, like, he signed on to the global gag, like, reinforcing it, and even further reinforcing it to, like, other, like, other treatments, such as, like, HIV, and it was just, it was like a downhill scenario for, like, family planning services, but hopefully, I feel like we're trying to reach common ground, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, you have, like, these international like body treaties, the Geneva Conventions, and policies, like documents that they've signed on, which is the purpose of it is to hopefully these the bodies, the member states, enact these laws into like their government and everything. But unfortunately, you'd be surprised as to how many the U.S. hasn't signed on. And, and that hasn't just been in the last four years. That's always been Oh, the yeah, case. yeah. It started off with, I believe it was President Ronald Reagan, who actually started the the global gag policy, which was which is actually known as Mexico City policy, I believe. So it's it's, it's cyclical, honestly. With every election, it changes. Um, so I mean, for anyone who might not be familiar with the Mexico City policy or the global gag rule, it's a U.S. government policy that blocks. U.S. federal funding for mm-hmm. NGOs that provide abortion counseling. Yeah, um, like any type like of like family planning services. services. Right, right. Which and they'll take it even a step further. So let's say like this NGO is re- receiving the U.S. aid, right? And but unfortunately, even if they have their own separate funding, besides from the U.S. funding, you still can't use that funding. Like let's say I'm also getting funding from another country. Let's um. Let's say France. Mm-hmm. I can't use the funding from France um, to do abortion services, even though if I am still getting also on top of the France funding, funding from the U.S. It's just any type of funding. It, like if you're signed on to the U.S. aid, it's just not going to work out. That. That's so interesting. If you're getting funding from the U.S. on that project or on, mm-hmm. on that NGO, you just can't sign on to any such services even if you're not using US money yes exactly if I if my understanding is correct um, this is how it's laid out at least for now I would imagine that if it was a separate project under the same NGO that the rules would be a little more lax but maybe that's mm-hmm. something for us to dig deeper on eventually <laughs> what are some projects that you're working on right now and what do you want to continue harping in on so i recently over the summer completed a consultancy with unisex education cannot wait ngo and basically i was focusing in on mental health and psychosocial services for students in emergency context so example like I'm like so saying it so many times about like a refugee setting or like crises affected areas, reinforcing like their social emotional skills. Um, but for me specifically, after graduating from with my MPH degree, I would like to work um, for an NGO that does work for women's health, especially like globally. So like in like you said before, like disadvantaged situations or like um, in the context. And I would hope to advocate for their um, their equality, especially for like 
the provision of services. So basically, like sexual and reproductive health services is my main goal, because I feel like, with like you said before, like there needs to be like a representation of your voice in policies and programming, and um, and if you don't have these individuals working on the, these platforms, then you won't be able to get these services equitably. So um, that's my goal: <laughs> is to you know decrease like the gender gap and increase towards like gender equality, especially for adolescents um, and their needs. I know you talked about policy making a little bit, but also something you mentioned before we got on this call was holding perpetrators accountable in the eyes of the government and uh, yes, legal authorities, yes. such as the police. So, um, uh, so I was actually surprised to know that countries in South Asia, so I was looking into the rulings of um, criminalizing um, violence against women, so like let's say sexual assault in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, mm -hmm. these three countries. And so they each, they each country have their own rulings on it and it's basically like, you know, like rape is rape and, you know, that's, you know, you can be punishable, you can be punched for it and stuff. So you have these laws, but unfortunately the law enforcement aren't like um, putting into action those laws that exist through like the government side. For example, um, in Pakistan, this issue, this issue that came about, which was like the motorway um, rape case, where yeah. this woman, this young woman, and her two kids were driving at night on like a highway, and it was right side, right outside of Lahore. And for some reason, I believe her car malfunctioned, or it ran out of gas, basically something like that. And it was at night, so she had to stop on the side of the highway. Um, to call her in, like to call her family members to let them know like you know like we need help and stuff and so in the meantime when she was waiting for someone to pick her up these two guys came along and they forced the woman out of the car and they assaulted her and it was unfortunate to hear that so this news broke to the nation like it became really like widespread on like news media and everything and I think it was it was really um, like further triggering that the police officer oh yes so I didn't mention this but when she did also call her family members for help she also let the police officers know that she needed help but like you know the police officers for some reason dismissed her complaint or her, her like help and when this incident took place, um, the police officer responded by saying, like, you know, like, basically victim blaming. Like, they were saying, like, how, like, you know, first of all, what was this woman doing out at night without a, like, without a madam or, like, without a guy in the car with her, with just being with the two kids alone in the middle of the night? You know, you shouldn't be out alone, first of all. Like, that's their first that's their first reaction into hearing this situation whereas you wouldn't be quite like you should be questioning why did the perpetrator even do this in the first place whereas like you are blaming it on the victim like you're asking you're putting the pressure on her which you can see even here in like the u.s like you know like she was asking for it or you know like yeah. i feel like the, in the first question the initial reaction goes on to the victim or the survivor not on 
the perpetrator. Which I feel like we need to reframe that thinking. How do we reframe that thinking? Uh, you know, I'll honestly say that in this modern era, <laughs> like to keep it really, really contemporary, but I feel like you can reframe that thinking by including young adolescents, so like guys, boys and girls, in the same space, right? For example, even in the US, when you have like your puberty videos, like you show them off, like you separate from that, from that at that age, like boys in this room, girls in that room. I feel like if you could reframe it by getting both of the sexes involved in the same space, talk about it openly, so there is no, there is no barrier, you know? Like if you started off in a young age, help create like a boundary of respectfulness mm -hmm. and also acknowledging you know each other's privacy by through open communication you know letting you know like it's not hard to respect the other person even though they are like the, uh, the opposite sex that is a really good point and i think it also kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier how such topics are considered taboo in mm -hmm. our culture so it's, yeah. it's just things men growing up just don't feel comfortable addressing exactly it starts off from like being young and saying you know like i'm sure like our parents told us like you know like don't talk to the opposite sex but then as soon as you hit like your age 20 you're like time to get you married and i'm like excuse me <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> like that's what a, okay that's a whole other issue in conservative families yeah, which we yeah. can go off on but <laughs> pertaining to today's conversation i am really i think anyone listening who probably isn't female would think okay how are you drawing the connection between a policeman asking the wrong questions or victim blaming to learning about periods at an early age. Like where is that line of connection? And I want you to reflect on that a little bit and on how learning about these things at an early age shapes mm -hmm. the way you think um, and eventually will open you up to having more open conversations mm -hmm. not just with your family your kids your wife or girlfriend but also if you're in a profession where, where you have to, to the deal public. with women yeah um and, and you have to be the voice in whatever room even if you don't have a profession where you have to deal with women issues you're prepared for that and i, I just want to hear your perspective on that mm -hmm. i feel like Especially for the police officer um, in the, the case that we were talking about, like, ex like again, like you had you had these laws that, you know, criminalize these type of behaviors and such. But the issue is, is that the police officer is still in that mindset, in that cultural mindset in which you grew in that society where, you know, women are subordinates to men and like it's like a patriarchal society right and i feel like you draw that line also to menstruation because it deals with the woman's body you know anything with a woman's body is already like you know you question it you don't give it that much of an importance and i get it's you know it's not a comfortable uh conversation to have mm -hmm. um 
But it really just starts within the immediate family members, like you were saying. Like if it starts within the household, then it transgresses into your friends. Friends, I don't know why, <laughs> but that that came that came out as like you know like southern accent. <laughs> but um, like a and little then bit of you... southerner in the... <laughs> a little Pakistan um, and a little southern America. <laughs> yes, and then soon you'll be hearing me talking like a British accent because I just like finished watching The Crown. Oh my god! Okay. Oh my god. Okay. Yes, we have to have a follow up conversation on that. But... Yes, <laughs> Diana, Diana girl my girl Diana okay and so like when you start talking about it with your friends then eventually it'll make it into like and then if you start implementing like um, reproductive health curriculum then it also crosses into like the school context and then hopefully it will build up to your professional needs and you don't have to be actively working with an ngo you don't have to be oh no no yeah yeah you don't have to be in a master's program <laughs> no talking about no you, can, you know honestly just talk to your female friend or talk to any anyone that is going through these type of experiences you know that doesn't hold that this privilege this power born into you know today's society and from the past societies, um, just have an open conversation. And I, I can assure you, you will end up learning a lot. <laughs> yes. You, yeah, I mean, I think even when I'm talking to someone from a different background, being mm-hmm. a female myself, I'll still learn something new. And I continue to. Even, like, Definitely. Even today's conversation, I am I'm learning more <laughs> as we go. <laughs> and that's why these conversations are so important because if we don't open ourselves up to stepping outside of our comfort zone of addressing the issues around us i know everyone's tired of hearing the word activist and okay you don't have to be an activist just be an active part of these conversations Mm -hmm, be an active voice in every room that we don't have representation in but i want you to leave us with a parting thought have an open ear you know don't be judgmental have an open ear, listen in on the other conversation, and don't be quick to judge. Because I know sometimes, especially with like topics like the gender pay gap, like the wage gap, many folks are quick to ju- jump in and say like, oh, you know, actually, that's not true. Or, you know, the media is framing it in a way where it's, you know, another feministic uh, issue. But be more open, you know, be more willing to hear yeah. about other people's stories. Absolutely. And I couldn't have said it better. I, I think there's a concept that every time two women, two or more women, get together and talk about feminist issues. or oh, they, already, they, they immediately think that, you know, it's going to be an anti-men issue. Right. Like, and it's no, really no. not. It, this doesn't have to be an exclusive problem that only women are dealing with. Yeah. You have women in your life, most likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Th- this pertains to all of us. That this is an issue we all want to talk about together, and it does not mean we hate men. It does not mean we're bitter. We just want more men to be our friends. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Imagine we want our to parents be listening to this equal. conversation. Like what? <laughs> you want more men to be your friends? I sure. Yeah, friends, allies? Question? Question? Partnership? <laughs> Partnership? <laughs> Thank you so much 
for oh, no. joining. I was gonna say I was gonna start off the call with saying thank you, Aisha, so much for providing a platform in which everyday individuals can come on here, like be vulnerable for like a couple of minutes, expose themselves to the public, <laughs> and wow, just to get like that, that sounds great. That's exactly yes. what I'm doing. Expose yourselves to the public. Yes. <laughs> like I don't have to be like an Instagram influencer to have like coming on on these like platforms, but you created one for you know just like everyday human being, and I love it. I love it, and I can't wait to hear the rest of the stories to follow up. Well, I actually, I, I didn't talk about this before, but I spend a lot of my time people watching. Yes, I love people watching. <laughs> I love people watching, and I haven't met a lot of people that have said they don't like people watching. Oh my、and、god! Whenever I'm in a coffee shop or even just walking down the street, and I see someone, and, and, and I wonder, well, I really, I'm so curious what their life is like. What are they thinking about right now? What's going okay, on? Okay, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> the next time we meet, we're just gonna people watch. I yes, feel like it's going to first of all, it's gonna be such a big eye like. A game changer. We're meeting in person given the pandemic situation. So you know what? <laughs> step by step, we're step not going to talk.、Step. We're just going to people watch. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to sit six feet apart, and we're、yes. just going to make eye contact with random people, and then each other.、Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I always get really curious about what people are thinking about, and they don't have to be famous. I think there's still such interesting stuff going on in our lives、mm-hmm. that. We just need to share with each other. It's kind of like you know humans of New York. Yes, and that's what really reeled me in into Brandon's work because he just took an ordinary, you know, person walking the sidewalk anywhere and showcasing their story, and then you really feel like, oh my god, I'm in that same boat,、mm-hmm. like everyday humans. <laughs> right. And my biggest dream was to be featured in Humans of New York. Oh yes! But like, my, what would you do? What would be your like story yeah, if you ever met him? Yeah, but my biggest fear, that's a good segue, is not coming up with something that's cool enough. Like, what do you <laughs> talk about? Like, I don't know. My life isn't that great. Like, yes. I baked a cupcake yesterday, a single cupcake, ate it by myself over the sink. That was. You、it. know what? And I should do that. The that cupcake for you, Joy. That cupcake did bring me joy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That's more than ever. Thank you, Hissa. Thank,、uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hopefully, you will love this as much as I did. Oh, I'm going to love it, and I hope the the listeners tuning in can relate to it as well, and they walk away with with it being happy or being like, you know what? I get these two women. Yeah, or or even if I'm feeling very very ambitious, maybe someone、yes. will walk away and take an action item. Yes. <laughs> say say maybe just have a conversation with a friend, but I will still be just as happy. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope we were able to address a very a much needed issue in society today. And break it down to simple steps that we can apply in our daily lives to make this world a better place. <laughs> As always, please continue to send me your thoughts, your stories, your feelings on Instagram stories on tape podcast. And if you feel so so charitable, consider a monthly ninety nine cents towards my podcast. You can go to. www.anchor/slash/stories-on-tape and find my profile to support. 